Uh, we are studying a, uh, beginning a new study today. So if you're joining us today, you're at a, coming in at a great time. You're not coming into the middle of a, a study. We're going to start one afresh since we've finished Hebrews and then also finished the study, the foundation study this summer. Uh, we're going to launch into a new study of what's called the pastoral epistles. Um, what are the pastoral epistles? That's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? Um, well, historically, there are three New Testament letters, that's what epistles means, letters, that are written to, to men who had pastoral duties. Uh, if you think about it, most of Paul's letters, when you read them, they're to churches, aren't they? To the church of Corinth or uh, Ephesus, or maybe a region of churches, like to the churches that are in Galatia. Um, but there are some letters you'll find in your New Testament Bible that are written to individuals, three specifically, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. But Philemon is not considered to be a pastoral epistle simply because he's not a pastor. So the pastoral epistles simply are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. So three letters that kind of lump together. And I ask you today to turn to 1st Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, which Reese read earlier for us, really are the theme of the book. You could take us right to that to find out what are these letters really about. What's the heart of behind these letters. 1 Timothy chapter 3, looking at verses 14 through 15. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Sort of as we looked at last week, there is a conduct that is becoming of one who belongs to the family of God. That's what we studied last week. What is this thing called the family of God? And the family of God is also called the house of God. It's not the building, but it is the church, the people. Uh, we, Lord willing, are about to be blessed with a building for our church. That's one of the reasons the sound test was happening today, because that's part of what you have to do to get the planning permission application in. But even if we get that building, um, it is not technically the house of God. We are. We're the house of God. But as we will come and, and dwell and gather in that house, then it would be the house of God. But it is the church of the living God. And it is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And obviously, we'll pack, unpack that more when we get to chapter uh, 3 in our study. And you might be thinking, well, okay, that's great, but why do we want to hear about letters that are from a pastor to a pastor? I mean, what kind of boring information are you guys talking about? Um, well, actually, um, these letters contain some incredibly helpful teaching concerning practical matters of church life. Uh, we'll look at how to conduct our pu public worship in an orderly manner. Uh, what is the organization of the leadership? How do you select leaders for a church? What are the qualifications that they must meet? He looks at confronting sin in the church. He looks at the role of women in the church, how to care for widows in the church, and even the handling of money. And there's plenty of exhortations uh, in these, these letters as well to pursue good works and to fight the good fight of faith. Those are just some of the things that we'll be looking at in these epistles. But today, we're going to begin with 1st Timothy. So if you just keep in 1st Timothy, look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. That's what we'll start with today. 1st Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, 
a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have before us to study these wonderful epistles. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you would bless not only the study today, uh, Lord, but the studies that we'll be uh, pursuing here for the next year. Lord, these are such fabulous letters and there's so much to be gained from them. And I pray that you would open up our hearts to accept the teaching that is contained herein. Lord, these are written so that we might know how we are to conduct ourselves in the house of God. It's a church of the living God. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be sober-minded as we approach these things, that we would take to heart all that we learn today and, Lord, for the days to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now to get the, uh, the most from our study, we're going to need to really make sure we understand the proper context in which this letter was written. And that begins with the author. And you can look right away. It says, uh, Paul. That's the first word of this letter. And so I have a very simple outline today. It's from Paul. That's point one. Um, this should be really straightforward. You would look at this letter, you'd open it, it says Paul, and say, okay, great, this is from Paul. And from the early church years, the authorship of this letter was never questioned. But when critical thinking came into the 19th century, actually people began to question the writing of this letter. And today, this letter is questioned if this is really actually written by Paul. They believe it to be uh, pseudonymously written, meaning it's, it's written under the pretense of being somebody else. So it's somebody else writing it saying, oh, but it's really, it's really Paul. Um, there's no evidence that the early church ever accepted letters of any kind to be apostolic when they knew it actually to be written by someone else. Never do you find that in the church. You might have heard some of these names from the second century church fathers, such as Ignatius, maybe you've heard Polycarp, maybe Clement of Rome. Uh, these men mentioned these writings as being from Paul. In the uh, pastoral epistles altogether, three of them are included in a second century list of canonical books called the Muratorian Canon. So they're, they're actually included in the second century saying these are Paul's writings. In the third century, you have such writers as Origen, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria. They all quote passages from 1st and 2nd Timothy and say these are from Paul. And you go into the fourth century, there's a famous church historian named Eusebius and he as well um, writes about the pastoral epistles and says that those are also included with all of the other Pauline epistles. But despite that evidence from the early church um, scholar, uh, history, scholars today still challenge these letters as being written by Paul. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Not a lot, but there's several reasons. But I do want to address one of the major ones today. And the only reason really I want to do this is because it will affect your study. And perhaps it already has. Perhaps you are a fairly astute student of scripture, and uh, maybe you, like me, love the history of, say, the book of Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles. And when you read through all the travels of the apostles, and particularly Paul, it's very fascinating where they went, and where they sailed, and where they, what they, when they did this, and when they did that. And maybe you've come across the pastoral epistles, and you've read through those, and you've kind of scratched your head a bit. Well, how do these fit within where it says Paul is and what he's doing in the book of Acts. Well, that's what these scholars say. They say you can't fit the Pauline epistles, some of the things that happen there within the, the actions and directions of Paul as Luke writes them in Acts. And I would say they're correct. I would agree. You can't. 
You can't read these letters and go, oh, this fits uh, right here. Um, it is actually impossible uh, to do. And so I want to start by acknowledging that, but also still upholding and defending the fact that Paul wrote these letters. Uh, so to help you understand this and the context, I want to take you to the book of Acts. And I want to start at the very end. So just go to the end of Acts chapter 28, if you will, the end of book of Acts. And I would keep a finger in 1 Timothy because we'll come back to it, but also keep a marker in Acts because we're going to spend some time in Acts today. In Acts chapter 28, very last chapter of Acts, verse 16, it says this, Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, we learned earlier in chapter 21 that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, then he, then he was taken to the hands of the Romans, and then eventually taken to Rome. Chapter 27 is that great voyage through the seas, they're shipwrecked and all of that. He's a prisoner on that ship. And in chapter 28, Luke is saying, okay, but we finally came to Rome. All the prisoners were given to the prison uh, guard, the captain of the guard, but Paul, not so. He was permitted to dwell in a house by himself, but he had a soldier uh, guarding him. So Paul is a prisoner, so to speak. So look at verses 17 to 20. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. And so when they had come together, he said to them, men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. So here we see that Paul, um, under the, the interrogation of the Romans, they determined that there was no reason to put him to death. But because of the pressure from the Jews, he appealed to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, if you appeal to Caesar, well, to Caesar you went, and that's why he's there. But notice, he's got his own place, and he's able to freely gather the Jews together and speak with him. And then Acts ends with these two verses, verses 30 and 31. Look at it. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So he had two years of this sort of house arrest, renting his own house. Do you see it there? And he received all who came to him, preaching the word of God. No one forbid him to do that. And then Acts ends. That's the it. That's it. So Paul's a prisoner in Rome, and that's all we know of Paul. And church tradition has it that Paul was beheaded while a prisoner in Rome under uh, the reign and terror of Emperor Nero. But Paul's life, if it did end here, then we would really struggle to understand how the pastoral epistles fit in. If Paul died here, then how do these letters uh, come in? Well, I want you to consider two things. One, Scripture doesn't mention the, the death of Paul. That's just church history tradition. It doesn't say, and thus Paul was beheaded. We don't find that uh, here. And so those scholars that criticize this and say, well, Paul died there, so this can't be written by him, are really making an argument from silence. Scripture doesn't say that he died here. Now, one thing I want to 
present to you is this. We actually do have evidence from both the New Testament and also church history and tradition that uh, there was a very likely possibility that Paul was released from this Roman imprisonment. And so it was during the release that these letters were written. Let me just show you this. Just look at what we just read back in verse 18. Paul himself states, there was no cause for putting me to death. In other words, there was no evidence that would support the need for his death. When Paul was arrested by the Jewish authorities, um, way back in chapter 21, the Roman authorities, they had to intervene because of the uproar uh, that had uh, his arrest created. And then while under Roman arrest, they, uh, a plot was discovered by the Jews to murder Paul when they were going to transport him. And so the Roman centurion Claudius Lysias came up with a plan to transfer Paul in the middle of the night and send him way to the coast at Caesarea Maritime. I've actually been there. It's an amazing Roman settlement right on the coast. And that's where the Roman governor Felix was. So basically, Claudius said, let's get him out of my hands. Let's get him to the Roman government. And Felix is there. So if you're still in Acts, turn to chapter 24, and we'll pick up the narrative here. Chapter 24. Paul is in um, Caesarea Maritime. He's under Roman arrest. He has presented his case to the governor, Felix. Felix, heard, he has heard all the, um, all the stuff against him. He's even talked to some of the Jews. And then look at verse 26. Meanwhile, he also hoped, this is Felix, that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Felix didn't think there was anything to do with this case, but he kept Paul there and kept bringing him back because he thought, I can get a bribe from this man, and then I can just release him. And then, it uh, looks like in verse 27, after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So two years go by to do the Jews a favor and keep peace. He keeps uh, Paul a, a prisoner. And so now another governor is in charge. His name is Festus. And when you read Paul's defense before Festus, and then you read what Festus says to King Herod Agrippa, again, it's clear that they saw no evidence that would warrant his death. Paul only went to Rome because he appealed to Caesar. Listen to Festus as he describes the situation to Herod. It's in chapter 25, verses 20 and 21. And because I was uncertain of such questions, this is Festus, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, that's Caesar, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. And so later, in fact, Paul is actually getting a chance to address this king, King Agrippa, and the conclusion is the same. You see it in chapter 26 in verse 32. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So what I want you to see is that they saw no need for his death. And seeing that Paul was under very light house arrest at the end of Acts, I think it's a fair assumption that Roman justice would have prevailed and that Paul would have been released. And that's what Paul himself expected. When you read through some of these letters, the prison letters, don't you read and, and, and go, well, it looks like Paul thinks he's getting out of this thing. He's not really going to go and see the gallows here. And, and Philippians is certainly one of those uh, places. In Philippians 1.19, you don't have to look it up. I'll put the verse up there. It begins with him saying, Basically, he's a prisoner. And then he says this, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. 
He first tells them, actually, don't worry, this is a great situation because actually I, I'm able to uh, preach to some of the palace guards. I'm able to you know, preach to people I wouldn't be able to preach to before. It's a good situation. And then he says, and don't worry, I know it's going to turn out for my deliverance. He's saying, I'm going to get out of this. This is not a big deal. A few verses later, in verses 25 and 26, he says this, and being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress of joy and faith, that you're rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Don't worry, I'm going to come see you again. Chapter 2 of Philippians, he says something similar, 2.24, but I trust in the Lord that I myself shall come to you shortly. All right, this doesn't sound like a man who thinks he's going to get beheaded anytime soon. And then, and Paul writes in another prison letter, Philemon, um, he writes this in verse 22, but meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers, I shall be granted to you. Now, clearly, Paul expected to be released. Maybe you came across those letters and you thought, where is he arrested? And he thinks he's going to get released because I thought he was in Rome getting beheaded. Well, this is probably why. There was no case against him. No one saw any reason for him to be dead. He's under a light house arrest where people can come and go freely. And as he writes these letters, he's like, don't worry, I'm going to come see you again. Contrast that with 2 Timothy. You read 2 Timothy, quite a different story. Look at 2 Timothy 4, 6-7. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. What's he saying? I'm done. I'm about to go. He was going to be beheaded. I believe that 2 Timothy would have been written in his second Roman imprisonment. Paul knew that that was going to be the end. So you add all this up, you have the testimony of Felix and Festus and Agrippa. Kind of sounds like a boy band in a way. Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. Um, You have the testimony of Paul himself. You also have one final point I want to give you, and that's church history and tradition. We know that Paul hoped to go to Spain. Remember that? He, he wrote about it in Romans 15, 24, and 28. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But when you read the Acts, you read his letters, you never find him going to Spain, do you? Never has he gone to Spain. But here he writes, well, I'm hoping to go to Spain. When Clement of Rome, I mentioned him earlier, he was a second century church father, he wrote to the Corinthians, and I want you to note, this is what he wrote about Paul. After preaching both in the East and in the West, Paul gained the illustrious reputation due to his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world, and came to the extreme limit of the West, and suffered martyrdom under the prefects, Clement of Rome. What was the extreme limit of the West of the Roman Empire? Was it Rome? Rome was the center of the empire. What was the western limit of the empire? Spain. Spain was. Clement is just listing all the things he did. He taught to the whole world. He went to the extreme limit of the west, and then he also suffered martyrdom. That's the history of Paul. Clement of Rome says he made it to Spain. When could he have done that? Through the middle between two imprisonments. The first imprisonment, being set free, and then rearrested and imprisoned, and ultimately beheaded. So that's my uh, belief. 
that in between those two imprisonments, he actually made a fourth missionary journey where he would have traveled to Spain, uh, possibly then through Macedonia, Achaia, into Ephesus, which is who this letter is written to, and Timothy is there. This is also supported by the third century church historian Eusebius. Listen to this. Under Festus, remember him? I mentioned him earlier. Paul, after having pleaded his cause, was sent a prisoner to Rome. But Aristarchus was his fellow companion, whom he also somewhere in his epistle calls his fellow prisoner. That's actually in Colossians. And Luke, that wrote the Acts of the Apostles, after showing that Paul passed two years at Rome as a prisoner at large and that he preached the gospel without restraint, brings history to a close. Well, that's true. We just read that at the end of Acts. He says Paul was there for two years and he preached the gospel to the whole world. Boom, end of story. But notice what he says. After pleading his cause, he is said to have been sent again to the city of Rome, where he finished his life with martyrdom. That's church history. So church history, tradition, Paul's own expectations of release, and certainly the uh, testimony of Felix and Festus and Agrippa would lend to the cause that he was probably released from Rome and made a fourth missionary journey. I have a map here of a supposed uh, journey. I mean, no one knows exactly for sure, but it seems that he went to Spain. So you've got Rome and Italy in the middle. He would have gone on to Spain. He would come back. He would have hit Crete. That's where Titus will be. He would have gone into Macedonia and Ephesus, and that, that he would have hit the kind of circuit there. And there's actually more evidence um, to, to, to establish that. So probably around AD 62, released from prison, and then made that trip, and then re-arrested under the persecution of Nero, and died around 67. Why do I share that all with you? I don't want you to be confused when you read scripture. I don't want you to be tongue-tied and have people come to say to you and say, oh, well, that doesn't match up with the rest of the scripture, so it probably was written by someone else. It's, there's actually New Testament support for the, fact, for the fact that he was released. But also, we can, looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at that again, without a doubt, safely assume the writer is the first word, Paul, okay? This is Paul. Who was Paul? Well, his name actually means little. It means small. That's what Paul means. I remember I, I watched a Life of Paul miniseries that starred Sir Anthony Hopkins, and it was fabulous. He's such a good actor, isn't he? And I thought, this guy is Paul. Well, it, it, it ruined me because every time I read about Paul, who do I see? <laughs> Hannibal Lecter. I mean, it's hell. I, I can't get it out of my head. Um, like, no, it's not him. It's, it's Anthony Hopkins. But Paul means small, and certainly they had, uh, many had a poor view of Paul. He wasn't a looker. The second century writer described Paul as this, a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs. <laughs> In a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness, for now he appeared like a man and now he had the face of an angel. He wasn't a looker, but he was a good man, friendly. He had a face of an angel. But his opponents said this of him. You probably read this in 2 Corinthians 10, 10. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. That was how they described Paul. Paul was born into a Jewish family, but he had Roman citizenship. And Paul described himself this way in Philippians 3, 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Concerning the law, a Pharisee. So this is Paul. In fact, his name, his Jewish name was Saul. And he was named Saul after the most prominent member of the Benjamin tribe. And who was that? King Saul. 
So he has King Saul's name, Saul. And when you read the book of Acts, that's how he is referred to uh, from his introduction on until you get to his first missionary journey in chapter 13, verse 9, and then you see him calling, called Paul. So he's Saul, renamed Paul. But before he was converted, he was a zealous devotee to Judaism. This is how he describes his zeal in Galatians 1, 14. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers. Yes, he was zealous. In fact, so zealous was he that he became the persecutor of the church, a violent hater of the church. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Paul, and he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. What is an apostle? Apostle is a messenger. Apostle is a sent one. We might say um, an ambassador is how we would use the word today. And Paul calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not just a sent one. He is a sent one of Christ. He's an ambassador of Christ, sent out by him. You might remember that the apostles of Jesus Christ were the 12 minus Judas, and, and they replaced Judas with Matthias. And then Paul is included in that list as well. They were all personally chosen by Christ, and they were all uh, taught by Christ. When seeking Judas's replacement, the apostles got together and they came up with criteria by which they might select Judas's replacement. And it's found in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. Look what it says. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, from, from, from us sorry, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So the qualification was that they had to be with Christ uh, and with them from the day of the, the baptism of John all the way to his crucifixion and witness his resurrection. Well, Paul qualifies on that basis because he met the risen Lord on the way to Damascus and on three other occasions at least, and we'll look at that. But I want to take you to Acts chapter 9. This is Paul's conversion. Acts chapter 9. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Happened on the road to Damascus. Paul is introduced to us as Saul at the end of uh, chapter uh, 7, holding the clothes of those uh, who were putting their garments aside so that they could more easily stone Stephen, the first martyr. He's the one holding their clothing. And then chapter 8 begins with Saul ravaging the churches. And he's on his way to Damascus to uh, make an arrest. And in chapter 9, it says this, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, that's what they called uh, those who followed Christ then, the way, if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. From that point on, Saul became an apostle of 
Jesus Christ, commissioned by Christ, sent out. Go, and you're going to be told what to do. And he certainly personally witnessed the resurrected, re- resurrected Christ. In addition to that, Paul received the gospel by direct revelation. He wasn't told the gospel by someone else. Christ himself um, told him. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, it says this, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but I just want to bring up another point in that Galatians chapter chapter 1, quoting from that. He says, I, I, I was never taught the gospel. It wasn't preached to me. I was taught it by Christ. I received it directly from Jesus himself. And then in Galatians chapter 1, he explains himself a bit. He says, When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Meaning, I didn't go to someone and say, hey, teach me what this is about. I didn't confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me. I didn't even go to, to Peter. I didn't even go to John. Well, where did he go to learn about it? But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. What was Paul doing in Arabia? Well, many believe that he spent the three years in Arabia being taught by Christ. And that's what he says in the next verse. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. So three years of, of wilderness teaching by Jesus. And then he goes to Peter and says, all right, this is what I got. I'm going to lay it out, make sure I've got this right. (laughs) And Peter says, I think you got it. You're good to go. So Paul, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was trained and taught by Christ the gospel and saw the resurrected Christ. So he was not just any apostle. He was a, a mega apostle. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 again. And it says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. It was a command. It was a a royal decree. His commission was non-negotiable. You must go and do this. And so Paul brings this out to Timothy. He says, I am uh, doing this by the commandment of God, our Savior. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? God, our Savior. We're accustomed to saying, "Uh, Jesus, my Savior. God, our Savior. You know, that's not a common New Testament phrase. It only appears in the pastoral epistles. It is common, however, in the Old Testament. You see that there. That's Jewish devotional language. Mary, the mother of Jesus, used that phrase. In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 47, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Read the Psalms. It's all about being God being our Savior, my rock, my refuge, my fortress, my shield, my protector. That's God. God is our Savior in the fact that he instituted the plan of salvation. It came from the mind of God. It was Jesus who carried out the plan, and that is why Jesus Christ is our hope. An amazing opening. So Paul uses this language to bring authority. He's the apostle of Christ by the commandment of God, but also confidence to to his, his charge to a young, timid pastor named Timothy. Second point of the outline, verse 2, to Timothy. So it's from Paul, and it's to Timothy. Who was Timothy? Timothy was a godly, had a godly Jewish mother named Eunice, grandmother named, named, named Lois. 
So a believing family on the mother's side, but his father was a pagan who was a Greek. And most people believe that Timothy became a disciple through Paul's ministry when he passed through a city called Lystra on his first missionary journey. And I want to take you to that as well. Go back to the book of Acts and look at chapter... Well, actually go back a little bit to 13. We're going to start in 13. I did this many years ago and it was extremely helpful, has proved helpful over the years. If you don't mind writing in your Bible... This is a thing I'll encourage you to do. I've actually marked where each of Paul's missionary journeys begin and where they end so that when I'm going through them, I understand, oh, those are the times he's traveling around proclaiming the gospel. And then it helps you to connect the cities. And so it is in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. It says, in the church that was at Antioch, there was a certain prophet and teacher, Barnabas, and it starts listing all these guys. And basically, the Spirit tells them to send out Barnabas and Paul but it starts in Antioch. That's where it starts, which is way up to the north of, 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 of Israel, up into Syria there. And that's where all the missionary journeys begin. They don't begin in Jerusalem. They begin up in Antioch. And so if you were to make a note, you certainly could put this, Paul's first missionary journey, chapter 13, verse 1, to chapter 14, verse 28. I wrote that right in my Bible. And that way I know, all right, I'm going through the first missionary journey. 13.1, to 1428. I want to take you to chapter 14 right now, because chapter 14 is where he goes through the city of Lystra. Recount this a bit for you. Paul and Barnabas heal a man who was born crippled, never walked in his life. So this man gets up and starts walking. What do the people of Lystra think? They're gods. You are Zeus. You are Hermes. Come down from heaven. And so they start worshiping Paul and Barnabas. They start offering sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And they rip off their cloaks, I think, to show them their bare skin to say, no, 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 we're men, don't worship us. And so they can't even stop these people from worshiping them. Enter the Jews. There was this group of rowdy Jews that liked to follow Paul on all of his journeys to rouse up the, uh, the, the crowd against him. Judaizers, we call them. And they come in the scene in verse 19. Look what it says of chapter 14. Then Jews from Antioch, that's where he started, and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. <laughs> okay, one second, they're worshiping him. The next second, let's just kill these guys. He stoned, supposed dead, dragged out of the city. Verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. <laughs> and the next day, he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. So Paul has a resurrection of sorts. Amazing. Now, many people believe that since Timothy was from Lystra, that at this time, at this moment, Timothy would have been a young man. And he would have been a young man to hear about Paul and Barnabas, how they healed a man who had never walked, that they were probably gods. And then the people stoned him and killed him. And then he just rose up and walked right back into the city. And many think Timothy was converted in that first journey. Um, and so he probably did have that um, conversion come about in a real way. And in, in the second missionary journey, Paul goes back through those same cities where he preached and made disciples on the first journey, and he goes back through Lystra. To mark the start of the second journey, you go to chapter uh, 15, and it's a verse 30. You could mark 35 or 36, but 35 mentions Antioch. Again, it's the starting point of his missions. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch. This would be the second missionary journey. Uh, but he actually 
begins the discussion about going out in verse 30, 36. So, but you could say 35 or 36 to 18, 22. Chapter 18, verse 22. That's Paul's missionary journey. It covers a lot more of the book of Acts, the second journey. And right away here in verse 16, you can see that he goes through Lystra. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to, to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. So Timothy became one of Paul's travel companions at this point. Um, and, 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 and you will find him traveling with Paul all throughout the rest of his journeys. In fact, the third missionary journey, um, Timothy is appearing everywhere as well as you go on. That begins, just for your notes, in chapter 18, verse 23. Remember, 1822 was the end of the second journey? That's right. There's not even a transition verse. Look at 1822. And when they had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to... Antioch. So there, they finished their second missionary journey. And then, verse 23, after he had spent some time there, they departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. And there it begins right away. Third missionary journey starts immediately. And that goes from chapter 18, verse 23, all the way to 2115. 2115. And, and you can see it. Uh, Timothy is traveling with them. You see him in several places. I'll just point out a, a, a few. In chapter 19, verse 22, so he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia uh, for a time. You see Timothy again in chapter 20, verse 4, li listed with a whole bunch of other guys, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus, all these guys are listed. Timothy is a travel companion, and by the time 1 Timothy is written, um, he's been traveling with Paul for about 15 years, a long time to travel around. And he was with Paul when he wrote many of his letters. He was with Paul when he wrote the book of Romans, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, the Thessalonian epistles, and even the letter to Philemon. Timothy was a very faithful travel, travel companion, but also Timothy was the one that Paul would send into churches to troubleshoot issues that were arising in the churches. And you, you read about him in Corinth, going to Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi. And now, according to 1 Timothy, he is in Ephesus. That's where he is. And here, Paul calls him, look at verse 2 again, going back to 1 Timothy, to Timothy, a true son in the faith. A true son in the faith. Real briefly, I want you to see these words. True is nasios, and it means legitimately born, not counterfeit. That doesn't mean true as in being correct, or, but it means actually refers to a birth. True, legitimately born. And son is actually technon, which means child or offspring. Paul had many spiritual offspring, meaning he, he led many people to Christ. They're listed all throughout the epistles you read about these different men and even women. But of all those that could be called his sons, do you know that there are only two in all of Scripture that are called True sons, they are Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles. So the pastoral epistles are letters from a pastor to a pastor, but also from a father to a son, 
a spiritual father to spiritual children. We know that he felt this way about Timothy simply by what he writes of him to say the Philippians. Look what he writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. There's no one like him. No one like-minded. Timothy is my man. And I, I, I serve with him as a, as a uh, father and a son. You know, there's never anything counterfeit or fake about Timothy. No guile. Paul could count on Timothy to preach the ways of Christ. He wrote this of him in 1 Corinthians 4, 17. For this reason, I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. He is, he is the one that best represents my love for Christ, and I send him to you. He loved him. Now, despite Paul's love and respect for Timothy, he knew that Timothy had some weaknesses. He had some struggles. For one, he, he was young. That's not his fault. And so in this letter, he tells him in 1 Timothy 4, 12, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Some people estimate that Timothy was in his 30s, which apparently was young to be a pastor of a church. And so they sort of um, maybe didn't have the proper respect for him and his role. Secondly, as I mentioned before, he was, he was timid. Paul had to call him to, to boldness. In 2 Timothy 1, 6-7, it says, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Remember that you have this gift and this calling, is what he's saying. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Do you remember the um, Corinthians? They were a proud, strong-willed church. There were some in the church who were resisting even Paul's authority. And Paul sent Timothy to them. How do you think Timothy's going to feel in that kind of environment where they don't even respect Paul? Paul had to write to the Corinthians ahead of time. In chapter 16, verse 10 of, of 1 Corinthians, it says, If Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Listen, make him welcome. Respect him is what he's saying. And Timothy was timid. And I have to tell you, a pastor cannot be timid. You read through the letters of Timothy, and over and over again, you see so many bold charges that that Paul gives to Timothy. I'm just going to quickly just flow through these real quick. In 1 Timothy verse 4, don't give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in the faith. You're going to have to hold true to, to the faith and don't get caught up in useless things. Verse 18, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. You're going to have to be a soldier, Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 12, and do not permit a woman to teach. You're going to have to stand for that or have authority over a man. Hard to stand for those things even today. 
4, chapter 4, verse 7. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. Chapter 4, verse 12. Let no one despise your youth. I already mentioned that one. Verse 14. Do not neglect the gift that is in you. Chapter uh, 5, verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. You're going to have to know how to conduct those things. I charge you before God, verse 21, and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things and without prejudice doing nothing with, with uh, partiality. In chapter 6, the end of verse 5, after listing uh, a man who's proud and um, obsessed with disputes and arguments and he's full of envy and strife and reviling, he says at the end of verse 5, from such withdraw yourself. Chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. And verse 20, oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. I mean, big, bold statements to this timid pastor. You must be bold. I remember when I was first a children's pastor. It's a fairly large church. I had a lot of supervisors and uh, women over different age groups of children. And um, there, there was just so much backbiting and so much gossip and so much talking. I just, I just couldn't deal. I would always take those to Pastor Chris. It's like, so this is going on over here. And he finally one day said, listen, you're going to have to handle these things. And I, said, I remember saying, Chris, I don't like confrontation. And he looked at me and said, listen, you're going to have to learn to confront people. He said, you can't get comfortable with sin in the church. It's gossip. He's like, it's sin in the church. You can't get comfortable. You're going to have to confront sin. You're going to have to do this. And he made me, <laughs> made me do those things. I, I don't like that today. I don't get joy out of confronting sin. Don't, don't think I sit down like, oh, I can't wait to let this person have it. But I hate to see people struggling in sin. And I must be true. And I must say what is obviously clear and say, listen, this is the path you're going down. This is what I see. You need to turn from that. It's not because I'm, I'm, I'm arrogant, I'm not using um, abusing any kind of authority. We're told to not be timid because this is what? The church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Timothy was a timid man and it appears that his timidity affected him physically because he had frequent ailments. In 1 Timothy 5, 23, it says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. I know people go, oh, see, there it is. You can drink wine. It's okay. It's not about that, is it? He said, listen, you've you got a lot of problems here all the time. You should probably take a little wine. It might settle that stomach of yours. I know your anxiety is creating that. I imagine that's what the case was. He was probably anxious and fretting over these things. He says, but you're going to need to be bold. And both of these letters, Paul is calling him to fight, wage war, rebuke, teach, correct, Paul opens this letter to this young pastor with a reminder first of his apostolic authority, his divine commission, and of the fact that despite these weaknesses, Paul considered him a true son in the faith. He ends his greeting, we'll look at this, this will be the end, with this phrase, the end of chapter, uh, verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace. You read the Pauline letters, Paul often used the twofold greeting, grace and peace. Grace is Greek, charis. But he also used the Jewish greeting, shalom, peace. Grace to the Greek, peace to the Jew. He 
he, he used both. But here he in, includes a third one. He adds mercy, which carries the idea of God's special care for a person in need, something someone like Timothy needed to hear. The church in Ephesus, as we'll see, was in danger of false teaching. They had people who lacked conviction, people who were compromisers, people tempted and led astray by wealth. And Timothy would have to be completely reliant upon God's grace, not just his saving grace. Remember, James says, but he gives more grace. It's grace upon grace. Remember, God's grace is with you even in the day-to-day. God's grace will be with you, his mercy and his peace in order to handle the difficult situations in Ephesus. So chapter 1, chapter, uh, verse 3, we looked at, this is the church. It's the church of the living God. It, it is the pillar and, and buttress of truth. And God demands that we conduct ourselves accordingly, as if we really are children of God. And to maintain the church, we must be fearless and we must be bold. As Paul tells Timothy at the end of this letter, to fight the good fight of faith. We too must be willing to fight the fight of faith and preserve and protect the truth of God's word. So let's do that together as we prepare to study this wonderful letter. Let's take these things to heart. This is the truth that we contend for because it's the house of God. Let me pray. God, we do thank you so much for this wonderful introduction to this letter letter by Paul. We thank you, Lord, for his love for his son in the faith, Timothy. Um, Lord, I thank you that you just make things so, so clear. Your, your, your word is not confusing. It's very clear how we are to conduct ourselves. I, I think man, the fear of man causes churches to uh, stumble into practices that are not godly because uh, they fear man more than they fear God but your word makes it very clear how we are to conduct ourselves. What do you want in your house? It's not my house. It's not our house. It's yours. And so Lord, we want to hear from you. May we be a church, Lord, that truly glorifies the owner of the house. We love you. We do praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.